Uh, you can turn in your copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 5. We are continuing in our new series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we've come to one of the most famous and the most misunderstood passages of Scripture in the entire Bible, uh, the Beatitudes, which I trust are familiar to you. Uh, What is a Beatitude? A Beatitude is uh, the condition of divine happiness or supreme blessedness, which is why, of course, each of the Beatitudes begins with that word blessed or blessed. Now, some have suggested that these Beatitudes are Jesus' punch list for what you need to do in order to earn God's blessing, to merit God's blessing. If you want God's blessing, you need to earn it by doing and being these things. Others still have suggested that this is an unattainable ideal that can never be reached and only serves to show you your sin. But the truth is that Jesus is describing a person living in this world whose life and heart has been penetrated by the kingdom of God. What Jesus is describing here in the Beatitudes is a person whose life in this world has been penetrated by the kingdom of God. They, they hold out to us someone who has been, as Trev prayed, transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of his beloved son, and describes what their life is like. In other words, the Beatitudes hold out for us a Christian. So, as we think about what a Christian is, would you turn with me, if you have it there in front of you, and listen as I read Matthew 5, starting in verse 2 through verse 12. These are Jesus' words. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before us. Would you pray with me again briefly? Lord, we pray that you would now feed us with your word. Uh, Even as Trev just prayed, would you nourish us, renew us, strengthen us uh, as we sit again under your word. Remind us that we are, in fact, under your word, that we we don't stand over it and judgment over it, evaluating what of it will take and what of it will embrace, but your word is over us. And that's good news because your word contains grace and life and hope and peace. So cause us now by your spirit to submit to your word in love and in joy and renew us again in seeing our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. When the kingdom of God 
breaks into your heart, breaks into your life, it necessarily and increasingly changes you into a person that resembles the king. That's the point. When the kingdom of God breaks into your heart and breaks into your life, it necessarily and increasingly makes you into someone who resembles the king. Now, if I told you that I walked to church this morning and on my way I was run over by a dump truck, would you believe me? Maybe you would. Maybe you'd be like, man, that guy's looking rough up there. I'm, I'm hoping, though, that you would see the inconsistency in that, right? Because surely if I had been run over by a dump truck, my, uh, you know, I would look a little different. And now what I'm trying to tell you is that the kingdom of God is more powerful than a dump truck. Because when it crashes into your heart, it doesn't merely change you externally, but it transforms you internally. And if you have not been changed, if you have not been transformed, the conclusion is that the kingdom of God has not crashed into your life yet. It transforms you. It must. It has to. And so the question that this passage presses down on all of us is, has the kingdom of God broken into your heart? Has the kingdom of God penetrated into your heart? Has the kingdom of God crashed into your life? If it has, it will necessarily transform the way that you live your lives. So as you read the Beatitudes, the question is, is Jesus describing you? Now there are three main things that we see here that happen in your heart when the kingdom of God comes into your life. And each, of course, each of these Beatitudes is worthy of a sermon, and, and at some point, hopefully down the line, I'll come back and we'll look at each you know, one of these Beatitudes individually, and we'll spend a sermon on each one, but, but this morning, I, I want to see all of them together, and when you see all of these things together, what they show us is that when the kingdom of God crashes into your life, there are three main things that happen. The first thing is this. You come to know the condition of your heart. You come to know truly the condition of your heart. Look, look at uh, Jesus' first beatitude there. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Je- Jesus can't be talking about physical poverty here. He says, of course, blessed are the poor in spirit. It makes me think of David. You know, David was, of course, one of the wealthiest kings of antiquity. And he writes in Psalm 34, 6, he says, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and delivered him out of all his troubles. And then in another place he says, As for me, rich David, wealthy David, massively powerful David, he says, As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought of me. Now there are some people that have uh, thought of this as physical poverty and have sought to teach that there is advantage in physical poverty. Now we're in a, uh, a town that is predominantly Roman Catholic. 
Some of you, I know, came from Roman Catholic backgrounds. The Roman Catholic Church, of course, teaches, and you see this in the whole monastic movement. You guys know about monks and monasteries. A big part of that was we're going to withdraw from life. We're going to deny ourselves you know, nice clothes and food, and we're going to live in poverty, and there's some kind of spiritual advantage to that. You know that priests in the Catholic Church take a vow of poverty because they believe that there is some kind of spiritual advantage to physical poverty, but that's just not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a poverty of spirit, a poverty of soul. He's talking about someone that has come to know they are morally and spiritually bankrupt before God. That's a poverty of spirit. Someone that has come to see that they are cosmic debtors of infinite proportion, that theirs is a spiritual poverty, a debt incurred against God because of sin that could never be paid back in a billion lifetimes. You see, in order to, when the kingdom of God breaks into your heart, you begin to see truly who you are. You begin to see your radical corruption in your heart because of sin. That's when you know the kingdom of God has broken in or when the kingdom of God starts to break in is because at the very, of the, uh, very center of the kingdom is the king and when you truly begin to see the king, the, the perfect revelation of his absolute goodness and kindness and grace, you cannot help but see your own corruption in light of him. You cannot help but see, but see your own spiritual poverty. You know, I think of Isaiah. You know, you remember Isaiah in Isaiah 6, where he gets this vision of the Lord. You have the seraphim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And what does Isaiah see? Right? When, when he sees the Lord, he says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a, a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. When you see the Lord, when the kingdom of God breaks in, you cannot help but see the poverty of your own soul. Or think of Peter, right? Do you you remember what happens when Peter sees Jesus? When Jesus is there, or Peter's there fishing, and Jesus comes along and he says, hey, cast your net, and they bring in this huge haul. It says, when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The, the world would say, I am, don't worry about it, it's just a phone. Just, don't worry about it. It's the phone ringing. It's okay. Right? The world would say, you know, I, you ask most people, like, you know, before God, no, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a, you know, I know I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But generally, I'm a good person. Do you remember what we read in Revelation 3 there? Right? When Jesus Uh, rebukes the church in Laodicea and he says you're neither hot nor cold and as a result I'm going to spit you out of my mouth what is the reason that he gives he says for you think you're rich you you think you you have everything you need you're you're self-sufficient you think that that you're not you don't recognize the truth of who you are that you're poor that you're blind that you're naked that you're pitiable and exposed that before me you have nothing look Have you come to see the poverty of your soul? I'm asking if the kingdom of God has broken into your heart. Have you come to see the absolute poverty of your soul? 
That's why Augustus Toplady in his famous hymn, Rock of Ages, he says, Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Have you cried something like that to the Lord? He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That phone is really going. It really is. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, he's not talking about crying physical tears. He's not talking about mere sadness over this thing or that thing. He's talking about a deep spiritual grief over sin. And notice the logical sequence of these Beatitudes. Right? What you see is a, is a logical connection from one to the next. Okay, The one who understands the poverty of their soul, who understands that they are spiritually bankrupt and, and, and having no resources before God, mourns. They mourn. You see, this is one of the ways that I know that Jesus is describing Christians here and now in this life. That he's not describing some unattainable ideal. Because if you are Christian, brothers and sisters, if you are Christian this morning, if you have come to Christ in faith, then in some measure, you must have experienced grief over your sin. You you cannot be a Christian. You cannot be someone who has had the kingdom break into your life and not have experienced a grief over your sin. A sorrow over the corruption that is in your heart. Now let me give you a quick qualification here. Mourning is not, this, this, the mourning that Jesus is talking about is not just a mere sadness over the consequences of sin. Right? Even the most hardened criminal who feels no remorse for the act itself is sad when he is caught and given the consequences of his sin. Right? To, to mourn over sin is not a mere sadness over the consequences of sin. It is a deep sorrow over the offense of your sin against God. And also it is a deep sorrow uh, over the sin that you see in the world. I, I think of David again. You remember David after sinning against Bathsheba and sinning against Uriah. He writes his famous Psalm, Psalm 51. He says, for I know. Now, by the way, consider the incredibly heinous sins that have been committed against Bathsheba and Uriah. But what does he write? He says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. The, the, the mourning that Jesus talk, is talking about when the kingdom of God breaks into your life, there is a mourning over sin, the offense that it is to God. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 17, there, there is a godly grief that produces repentance, that leads to salvation without regret, whereas there is also a worldly grief, a worldly sorrow, a worldly mourning that only leads to death. Now, let me, let me issue you a little, uh, another qualification. It's full of qualifications. Uh, I said that there will be a deep mourning and a deep sorrow over your own sin, first and foremost, but there will also be a deep sorrow over the sin that you see in the world. But be careful. Okay, if I say, do you feel, do you mourn? Are you sorrowful over the sin in the world? You may think to yourself, yes, I am. You may look out in the world and you may just absolutely you know, be 
frustrated and even angry. And be careful that what you are thinking is sorrow and mourning over sin is not just disgust and revulsion. There is a difference. Okay, some people look out at the sin of the world and they're disgusted and they're revolted. And sin is disgusting and revolting. And yet what it does is it, it, it makes them put their hand up. I don't want anything to do with the world. I don't want anything to do with those folks. Right? It's not a deep sorrow and mourning that, that feels the weight of the destruction sin brings in other people's lives. Do you know what the distinction is between just like a, a disgust and a revulsion at the sin in the world and a deep sorrow and mourning over sin in the world? The difference is love. The difference is love, is that you look out and you see a world that is blinded and in darkness and corrupted and reaping the consequences of their sin, and you don't go, get that away from me. You don't, you don't say, I don't want anything to do with that. You, your heart breaks your heart is, is affected. You, you long to see those sins forgiven. You long to see them free of the burden and the bondage of sin. And your impulse is not to just put my hand up and get away, but no, to move towards them with the gospel of grace. There is a mourning over sin. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And here, maybe more than any place, Jesus' description of a kingdom person grates against the Jewish conception of uh, what it means to be blessed and also the world's conception of what it means to be blessed. You, know, you think about like the Jewish expectation of the Messiah. right? The expectation of the Messiah was that he would be a powerful king who would arrive, who would impose his rule by force and destroy all his enemies with a few you know, waves of his mighty sword and then Jesus shows up and, and says, no, the, the kingdom of God is going to come through suffering. The kingdom of God is going to come through the humble laying down of one's life. You think about what the world thinks about and, and, and uh, identifies as those who are blessed. You know, who does the world say are the blessed? The world says it's the powerful, the, the impressive, the imposing the self-assured, the self-reliant, the self-confident. But Jesus says, no, it's, it's the meek that shall inherit the earth. And what is this meekness? It, it is the outward expression of lowliness. Track with me. It's the outward expression of lowliness that comes from knowing the inward condition of unholiness. Okay, when you feel the poverty of your own soul and you mourn your own sin and you see your own sin, it necessarily humbles you and causes you to move out into the world in meekness, in lowliness, in humility. You see, when the kingdom of God breaks into your heart, one of the signs that the kingdom of God has indeed broken into your heart is that you move out towards others in humility and meekness. It is a humility that comes from knowing the poverty of your own soul before God, of feeling regularly grief over your sin, and of knowing your need. Listen, the meekness that Jesus is talking about here, it is the inability to assert yourself as superior to someone else because you know that you stand helpless and hopeless in your sin before God. It's the meek that shall inherit the earth. 
You know, it reminds me of um, Spurgeon. Spurgeon had uh, his quote. He says, you know, uh, if, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him. You're, you're way worse than he thinks you are. And that's what, produ- that's, what, that's what the gospel, I know it's funny, but that's what the gospel produces in us. That's what the kingdom of God produces in us. Right, a humility, a meekness. You come at me and say, hey, look, I got this list of criticism. Like, you don't even know the half of it. You don't know what's down here in this heart. You don't know what's going on in this brain. You don't know the, the pride. You don't know the greed. You don't know what's happening in there. And so it humbles you. You see it. You grieve it. You mourn over your sin. And you move out towards others in humility and meekness. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You know, th- th- this one means two things. A-, a starving person knows what he lacks. You know, a starving person isn't like hungry, like, you know what I really need right now? I need like a new wardrobe. Like, no, a starving person knows that what they lack is food. They're starving. They know they need food. And a person dying of thirst knows that what he lacks is water. And a kingdom person knows when the kingdom of God breaks into your life, what you know, what you come to realize is you lack righteousness. What you come to see is that in and of yourselves, you lack righteousness. You lack a right standing with God. You lack a life that is pleasing and delighting to God who is holy. When the kingdom of God breaks into your life, you cannot help but see the fact that you are hunger, that you are starving and dying of thirst, that you have no righteousness in and of yourself. But a starving person also knows this. A person dying of thirst also knows this, that their need, that that, that their only hope for being filled and for having their thirst quenched is for someone to graciously give them what they need. Like if you're starving or dying of thirst in a desert, like you do not want someone to come up to you and be like, hey, I'd like to give you some cooking lessons. I'd like to give you a gift card to your favorite restaurant. If you're starving and dying of thirst, what you need is someone to come and graciously give you food and give you water. When the kingdom of God breaks in, you know what you lack. You know that you lack righteousness and you know that it can only come to you by a gracious act of someone who has it. A kingdom person knows that if someone doesn't come along and give them the food and the drink of righteousness that they will just die and perish in the desert. So what does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? It means first a longing. What is the hungering and thirsting for righteousness? First, it's a longing to be made right with God. It's a longing to have a right standing before him, to know that God sees you and delights in you and accepts you and approves of you. Have you experienced that hunger, that thirst? Have you, look, look, I just want you to keep asking yourself, is this me? 
Have you known a poverty of soul? Have you known a mourning over your sin? Have you known a meekness that has been produced by knowing those things? And have you felt the deep hunger and thirst of your soul for a righteousness that you know that you, you can never have on your own? It means also a longing to live righteously before him. You know, I'm telling you that these Beatitudes are a description of the Christian. They are a description of the Christian because of their vital connection to the king. The Christian cannot embody any of these Beatitudes outside of connection by faith to their Savior. And so there is a longing to live righteously before him in the grace that he supplies. It also means a longing for his righteousness to be revealed in the world. You know, in a few uh, passages, when we get to Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus will teach his disciples to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. It's a righteous kingdom. His people long for his kingdom to be revealed here and now in the world. Is that you? And now, how is it that these people, right? The poor, the mourning, the meek, the hungering and thirsting, how is it that they are the blessed? You know, how is it that they are the ones that Jesus says are blessed? I'll tell you why. Because Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. In order to be filled, you must first be emptied. In order to rejoice, you must first weep. In order to be raised up, you must first be made low. In order to be satisfied, you must first hunger and thirst. And in order to know the good news, brothers and sisters, I know you know this, in order to know the good news, in order for the good news to be sweet to you, in order for the good news to be the source of ultimate soul rejoicing, you have to know and embrace and feel the weight of the bad news. And the bad news is that you are spiritually poor, wretched, blind, pitiable. Jesus is regularly saying, regularly saying things like this, right? You read throughout the Gospels, you hear Jesus say, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It's an upside-down kingdom. You have to lose it to find it. You have to see how poor you are in and of yourselves to be made rich in him. And here's the point. You cannot joyfully exclaim. Listen to these words. You cannot joyfully exclaim, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord until, you're, until first you desperately cry out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You cannot say the one without first saying the other. Have you come to know the wretchedness of your condition? When the kingdom of God breaks in, you begin to see truly the condition of your heart. You begin to know truly your standing before God. But not just your standing. You know, Sinclair Ferguson in his little commentary, when he gets to the end of these four Beatitudes and he moves on to the next, this is, how, this is his little transition. He says, undeceived at last. Undeceived at last, we see that our only hope is in the Lord. Have you experienced that? The blinders taken off. It's, listen, you know, how many of you have, have trouble looking in the mirror sometimes? Okay, it's even harder to look yourself in the mirror from a spiritual standpoint. It's even harder, you know, to be honest about who you are and what you are. 
And yet until the blinders are taken off, until you come to see the truth about your own spiritual poverty, you will never come to the Lord and say, you are my only hope. But when the kingdom of God breaks in, the blinders come off and undeceived at last. Free at last. Eyes made open and clear to see the truth of who we are at last. We can see that our only hope is in the Lord. Those who have had the kingdom of God break into their lives, they begin to know the true condition of their own heart, but they also come to know the grace of God. They know that not only is God holy and righteous, but that he's gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The next three Beatitudes... And and Jesus lists here the next three Beatitudes are all spiritual conditions that result from knowing experientially the grace of God. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure. Blessed are the peacemakers. They are all spiritual conditions that result from experiencing and knowing the grace of God. Look at verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, merciful, for they shall receive mercy. What is mercy? Blessed is the merciful person, the one who who moves towards the undeserving with kindness and compassion. Now, look, I I know I mentioned this a little bit last week, but let me just hit it again. Is Is what Jesus is saying that our merciful treatment of others is the basis and the reason for God showing mercy to us? It can't be that. You, you, You see, you realize that. If that's what Jesus means, we have to throw out the rest of the Bible. Hey, Jesus cannot be meaning, here's how you get God to be merciful to you. Be merciful to other people. That's not what he's saying. So what is Jesus saying? He is saying the surefire way to know that you have really experienced and embraced the mercy of God towards you is to look at your life and see if it increasingly resembles that mercy. In other words... Here's the question that this would put to us. How can you receive the mercy of God and treat others unmercifully? Jesus' answer is you can't. The merciful life is evidence. It's not the reason or the cause, but it is the evidence that you have indeed encountered and embraced and been the recipient of God's mercy. How you treat others reveals your spiritual condition. Now let me tell you a a story. When I was in elementary school, I was not what you would say uh, at the top of the social ladder. But I had a group of friends, and we were all generally regarded as nice kids. Everyone thought of us as good kids. Look, there they are. They're good kids. They're nice kids. But there was another kid, a a boy, who was even lower on the social ladder than I was, even lower on the social ladder than me and my friends were. And he started trying to to, to hang around our group. You know, we got in recess, and he tried to start hanging around our group. Kids, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, your experiences in school. Maybe this will resonate with you. And, and do you know 
as soon as I had the upper hand, and as soon as my friends had the upper hand, we turned into cruel, torturous, merciless people. As soon as we got the upper hand. We, we, he wanted to hang out with us, and we put him through this humiliating battery of tests to see if he was worthy to hang out with us. Even now I think about it, just filled with just like shame. How could you, like just absolute disgusting. And then at the end, after he did all of our stupid tests, still we rejected him because we couldn't bear the thought of being associated with him because we had to preserve our, you know, social status. Now here's my question. Did that encounter turn me into a merciless person? It didn't. What happened was, as soon as I got the upper hand, as soon as there was an opportunity to, to move towards someone lower than me in kindness, it revealed what was actually in there. It revealed that what was inside was actually a merciless, cruel troll. But, but what happens when you experience the mercy of God what happens when you come to know the, the kind compassion of God? What happens when, when you come to see God, who has every right, by the way. Did I have any right to treat, him, to treat this young boy that way? Absolutely not. But when you see God, who has every right to come to you and crush you into the dust and show you not one little ounce of mercy, but move towards you in kindness and love and compassion and tenderness. When the kingdom of God breaks in, it must change you. It necessarily does change you. You, you, you. Mercy becomes a reflex. You become sensitive to people in situations that call for an undeserved kindness. And you want to be the person that shows that kindness. Not to prove yourself, but out of an overflow of the lavish mercy that has been shown to you by God. Brothers and sisters, have you experienced the mercy of God to you? Have you known the mercy of God to you in Christ Jesus? Now, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Again, consider that a kingdom person not only knows the mercy of God and therefore lives mercifully, but he has seen the perfect cleanness and holiness of God and thus purifies himself as he is pure. You know, it's interesting here that Jesus comes back to holiness. You could argue that those first four are Jesus talking about what our response should be to the holiness of God. Right? Before the holiness of God, we are poor. Before the holiness of God, we mourn over sin. Before the holiness of God, we are made low and meek. Before the holiness of God, we know that we hunger and thirst for righteousness. But now he comes back to holiness again. Blessed are the pure, the clean, the holy. And do you, do you see what he inserts in between the middle there? It's mercy. Because when you become a Christian, the, initially the holiness of God is a terror to you. And it should be. It's a weight. It's a burden. It's a frightful thing because you see the, the perfections of God and you measure yourself up against it and you go, I got no chance of being able to stand before him and survive. But then when you see his holiness through the lens of God's mercy, it becomes absolutely captivating and compelling and beautiful to you. You long to look into the goodness of God's character. 
You long, you long to look into his holiness. You long to look into who he is and what he's done and in, 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 into his righteousness. You know, think about how devoted and committed you become to things you admire. Right? When you see something that you admire, you love to dwell upon it. You, you love to, to look at it, to think about it, to share it. And so it is here with kingdom people. They have seen the glory of God, and so they, they long to look into him. They long to see him, and as they see him, they are purified, and as they are purified, all the more they are equipped to see him and rejoice in him. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now you get what, I'm hoping you're picking up the pattern here. You see what Jesus is doing, right? Who are the peacemakers? Who are the peacemakers? They are the ones who have experienced the grace of God in moving towards them, not as, as a foe, not as a conquering enemy, but God moving towards them to make peace with them, to reconcile them to himself through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. And the inevitable and necessary proof that this has happened in your life is that you live as a peacemaker and therefore demonstrate that you are among the sons of God. You, you know, like this uh, analogy here of, of being sons of God, right? What do sons do? What do sons and daughters do? They, they imitate their fathers, Right? Now, here's the question. Does, does a son imitating or a daughter imitating, is that the thing that makes them a son or a daughter? Do they become a son or a daughter because they imitate? No. But the imitation is proof of who their dad is. You see? Now, undoubtedly, some of you haven't come to see the true condition of your own hearts, and so the grace of God isn't beautiful to you. Others of you see your own sin and, and know the depths of your sin, but what you lack is a true knowledge and a true experience of God's mercy towards sinners. Look, the whole thing, the whole thing I'm trying to say is when the kingdom of God breaks into your life, you see the truth of your condition, you see the poverty of your soul, but then you see the grace of God and you come to him and you trust him. Has that happened to you? Have you experienced that? Have you come to know the merciful, holy, reconciling grace of God to you in Christ Jesus? Has the kingdom of God penetrated your heart? And, and if it hasn't, and even if it has, brothers and sisters, Christians, members of the church, even if the gospel of the kingdom has penetrated your hearts, can I tell you that what you need this morning, and especially what you need this, well, this is true for everyone equally, but if you're here and it hasn't penetrated your heart, if you're here and it has penetrated your heart, what you need this morning is to hear the merciful God again inviting you in to see the way into the kingdom through the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. Consider Christ. Look, for the Christian, there is only a one way to grow in these beatitudes. And for the non-Christian, there is only one, for the non-Christian, like, there is only one way into the kingdom, into the experience of these beatitudes. And it is to know the one who is giving them. Consider Jesus. Consider the poverty of soul. 
Jesus knew a poverty of soul like no man ever did. Think of Jesus coming down out of heaven, leaving aside his glory. Think of Jesus who comes into the world, not a wealthy king, not a powerful politician, but a, a poor itinerant preacher. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, and he lives his life poor. A poverty. No one ever mourned over sin like Jesus did. The prophets tell us he was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. But he was not filled with grief over his own sins because he had none. Instead, he was overwhelmed with the sorrowful burden of your sin. And don't you see this morning that Jesus' mourning over sin was not a superficial disgust or revulsion that caused him to put his hand up and say, get away from me, don't come near. But no, his, his mourning, his sorrow over sin, sin compelled him to move towards you in compassion and grace and tenderness. And never was any man more meek than Jesus. You know, in one of the only places where Jesus describes his own heart, he says, take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly in heart. Same word there, meek and lowly in heart. To be meek is to live a life of humble submission to God. And you know when Jesus comes to the most agonizing hour of his life, when God the Father holds out to him a cup and says, this is what it's going to take to purchase a company of absolutely poor, pitiable, wretched people. It's Jesus' meekness that compels him to say, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Never was there a man meek like Jesus. Never did a man hunger and thirst for righteousness more than Christ. He said to his disciples, my food, my food, my sustenance is to do the will of my Father. But consider, listen, consider the ultimate expression. Consider the ultimate expression of his poverty, of his sorrow over sin, of his meekness, of his hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Consider the ultimate expression of his mercy poured out. Consider the ultimate expression of his holiness and righteousness displayed. Consider the ultimate expression of his reconciling, peacemaking power. Where? It's an upside-down kingdom at the cross. That's where you see it, at the cross. On the cross, you realize at the cross, Jesus Christ utterly dispossesses himself. He becomes eternally poor. Why? So that you could become rich. On the cross, he loses everything. His grief and sorrow over sin is so deep that he resolves to stop at nothing to relieve you of sin's burden. And so he carries it to the cross. He humbles himself. He, he becomes eternally meek. He voluntarily makes himself so low that he subjects himself to humiliation and the agony of the cross. And on the cross, he cries out. You remember what he cries out? He says, I thirst. And you know, it's a paradoxical cry because on the one hand, that cry for Jesus, uh, I thirst, it's a cry for righteousness. And in one sense, 
that cry is utterly rejected and, and, and silenced. Right? Because Jesus is the victim. He is, he is crushed. Though he had no sin. Where's the righteousness in that? I'll tell you where the righteousness is. It's because he was bearing your sin. He cries out for righteousness and God says, okay. And he pours out his righteous wrath upon the sin bearer. Upon the one carrying in his body your sin. And on the cross, the presence of God is ripped from him and he becomes utterly poor. Utterly poor. Destitute. God rejects him. And why does he make himself eternally poor in spirit? So that you by his poverty might be rich. Brothers and sisters, here is the merciful, holy, peacemaking God of grace towards sinners. Has that God, has the, the kingdom dawned on you? Has it penetrated your heart? Has the mercy of God expressed, worked out in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? Has that penetrated your heart? The very last thing, and I'll wrap up with this, the very last thing, you, you, when the kingdom of God breaks into your heart, you come to see the truth of who you are. You come to see the truth of your, your heart's condition, but you also come to see the truth of God's grace and God's character to you. Here's the last thing that happens. I shouldn't say the last thing. Here's the next thing that happens. The next thing that happens is you, you come to know the hope of heaven. Look at um, these final Beatitudes. <clears throat> those who have come to these things know that because Jesus rose from the grave, that there is a hope that goes beyond death. Verses 10 and 12, we read, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your, your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When the kingdom of God breaks into your heart and into your life, you realize that your hope is in heaven. Look, two, two components. One, you realize that your hope isn't here. You realize that your hope is not in this world. You realize that by identifying Christ, you're signing up in some measure to be rejected, to be scorned, to be persecuted, to be insulted. But you know that your hope is not here in this world. You know that this world is passing away, that the things here can never satisfy the soul, that the reward that is here is fleeting and passing and turns to ash in your mouth. But you also know this, you know that there is a great hope, a great eternal reward, a rest for your souls that is yet to come at the return of Christ. Listen, when the kingdom of God breaks in your heart, you, you see this reality all throughout the New Testament that the kingdom is described in already terms and in not yet terms. You see, when the kingdom of God breaks in your heart, the seed of the kingdom planted in your heart, it begins to grow. You begin to see the fruits of the kingdom, but one of the fruits of that kingdom is you know that there is a final and consummated kingdom still to come. A fullness of hope, a fullness of reward. Now, if you're a Christian here this morning, born again of the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then the kingdom of God has penetrated. The kingdom of God has taken root in your heart, which means you can see these things in there. 
right? I'm not saying that all of these things will be perfectly expressed in your lives, but you have to see them though. There's, there's, a, there's a seed of it there in your life. You see the seed. You see the, a poverty of spirit. You see a grief over sin. You see a meekness being produced. You see a hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You see a desire to move out towards others mercifully. You see a, a, a longing to resemble Christ in purity and holiness. You see a, a desire to be making peace between enemies and, and moving towards one another with the reconciling grace of God. These things are present. Are they, have they reached their full expression? No, and they won't until glory, but you see those things in there because God, by his spirit, has planted the seed of the kingdom in your heart. And what you need for that seed to grow, by the way, what you need for those fruits to continue to bear fruit and to grow and to become more and more evident in your life is to continue to look to Christ, is to continue to see Christ in the gospel. That is the power, that is the the motivating force behind these fruits continuing to grow in your life. But if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you've not yet experience the kingdom of God breaking into your life. And maybe you're seeing for the first time that you are not in the kingdom of God, that you're not a child of God, that you don't have the hope of heaven. The Lord, you need to hear me say, the Lord is calling you today, right now, right now to repent, to turn away from your life of sin and to turn towards Christ in faith, to yield to him as your king. This is how we, we, God graciously gives entrance into the kingdom through faith, not through works, not through anything you would do on your own, but through trusting and putting your faith in the king. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you know this. That king never turns away someone who comes to him in need looking for mercy. Do you know that? Jesus never turns away someone coming to him in need looking for mercy. He delights to receive sinners. And if you are not in him, won't you come to him today so you can know what it is to be truly blessed in the kingdom of God? Who is blessed? Who is the blessed one? It's the one who trusts in the Lord. It's the one who has had the kingdom of God penetrate their heart. The one who knows the true condition of his soul, who knows the grace of God and is thereby come to know the hope of heaven and who therefore increasingly resembles the king to the glory of his name. Amen? Let me pray for us. Lord, we we do thank you that your kingdom has broken into the world in Christ. That you've made a way for sinners to come into that kingdom. Not through any work or through any merit of their own, but by trusting in the finished work of Christ. That by his death, our sins are atoned for, and by his resurrection, we have justification, a right standing before you. Lord, I pray that if there is even one here this morning that has not come into your kingdom, that you would grant faith and repentance, that they would indeed yield to the king and find what it is to be truly blessed in your kingdom, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.